welcome to Wawasee. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we start a brand new series. I'm really excited about it. Uh, it's called The Sweetness of Freedom. And we're going to be studying uh, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia today. Or you might know it as the New Testament book of Galatians. And uh, this letter is, is really incredible because what Paul does is he outlines a bombshell of truth to people. Do you know what it is? A lot of times when we think of the gospel, sometimes we think of it as, uh, Tim Keller has this phrase, I really like it, I'm going to just steal it from him today, where he says that uh, a lot of times we think of the gospel for unbelievers as the ABCs of how to become a Christian. But in reality, you know what it is? It's the A to Z of how to live as a Christian also. It's not just the beginning, it's not just the ABCs, but it's the A to Z. It's everything about your life. And if your life isn't uh, characterized by the gospel, the question is, have you really trusted it? See, that's kind of what Paul's writing to the Galatians. They believed in the gospel of God's grace through Jesus Christ early, but then you know what they did? They started adding all these things to it. They started adding on, well, you have to be circumcised. Uh, you have to follow all these Jewish rituals and traditions. And uh, yeah, I know it's God's grace, but it's God's grace plus. <laughs> and Paul is furious when he writes to the church, churches of Galatia. And so this morning, we're going to see him solving uh, this series, I should say. We're going to see him solving their issues, not by saying, uh, be better Christians. That's not how he's going to solve it. Because that doesn't solve it. He's going to call them instead to live out the implications of the gospel in their everyday, every way life. It's not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z. And uh, this morning we're going, to, we're going to open up the book of Galatians. We're going to start our way through it and we're going to be in it for about 12 weeks. Uh, it's going to take us, it looks like right now, probably to about the 1st of July. And uh, we're just going to plow through this book together. Are you ready for it? If you're ready, say ready. ready. All right, let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us. Thank you that uh, uh, our salvation and our sanctification have ultimately nothing to do with us, but everything, Jesus, to do with your grace and your work on the cross, so that nobody can boast, so that I can't boast in how good I've become, and I can't boast in how I've become a Christian, and, and neither can anyone else, but we can only boast Jesus in you. Teach us that truth over these next weeks and months. And uh, Holy Spirit, I pray you teach me, even as I teach, I pray that uh, the truth of the gospel would, would simply explode in people's hearts over the coming weeks and months that we truly see the sweetness of living a life of freedom, Jesus, in you. I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would uh, bind us and uh, 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 load us up with all kinds of burdens, Jesus, that you uh, have paid for and have taken care of. So instead, give us grace to live in freedom. We love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, the letter to the Galatians is uh, it's helpful as we get going, maybe just to give some background of why this letter was written, who it was written to, what all's going on. And uh, because if you just pulled out a letter out of maybe your grandma's drawer that somebody wrote to her 30 years ago, you'd be like, okay, nice letter. But maybe if you knew all the details that surrounded it, it might be helpful for you in understanding maybe how profound that letter to her was. 
So, so let's talk about some of those things. First off, it's written by a guy named Paul. And Paul was a church planting missionary. He originally, his name was Saul. And what's, what's amazing about Paul is that uh, previous to becoming a Christian, he was uh, maybe the most uh, zealous of all the Jewish leaders. Because he, he, was, he was so zealous, in fact, that, and, and so upset with these uh, followers of the way, these Christians, that uh, he wanted to impose greater burdens on them. And if they wouldn't accept them, he, he actually approved of their murder. In, uh, when Stephen is murdered in Acts chapter 7, there's this young man by the name of Saul who held all the coats of the people throwing rocks. That was Paul. And he approved of what had happened. And yet what happens with him is in Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus to do the same thing and to persecute Christians there. And Jesus appears to him. He appears to him. And Paul is blinded on his horse. He, he falls off onto the ground. And uh, he's like, uh, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, who are you, Lord? And he's like, I'm Jesus, the one you have been persecuting. And we're not told all the details of what happens next, but for three days, Paul still saw at this point is blind. And uh, he goes into the town of Damascus and another uh, guy who was afraid of him, a Christian by the name of, of uh, uh, now I can't remember his name now, David, help me out. Athenias, is that right? Ananias, thank you. Sorry, I put you on the spot. You weren't ready for that. That was kind of mean. Um, Ananias comes up and uh, uh, God tells Ananias, hey, the, that Saul guy, he's, he's on Straight Street and you're supposed to go over and pray for him. I told him you would come. And he's like, God, that's the guy who is like killing Christians. I don't really know what I want to go over to his house. It'd be like if someone in Al-Qaeda who you had seen a video on YouTube beheading Christians, suddenly uh, God uh, came to you and he said, uh, hey, uh, that guy is in a house a couple blocks away and I'd like you to go over and pray with him. <laughs> sure, God. But that's what happens. And he does, and it says as he prayed, like something like scales fell from his eyes. And now Paul was a new man. He was brand new. The burden he had carried for so long of following the law, of trying to be right with God, and the, the burden he had imposed on others was, was gone. And he had freedom. And he begins preaching the gospel. And one of the things that he does is he goes in the book of Acts where we have three of his missionary journeys that are recorded. And on one of those through Asia Minor, he plants a handful of churches in towns like uh, Derby and Lystra and, and Iconium and some others. And this is in an area of the world called Galatia. It's in modern Turkey. I'll, I'll show you a map here in a little while. But this letter, uh, Paul would plant churches and then he would often write letters back to the churches he planted. So he would stay there sometimes for as long as a few years, but oftentimes for a few months, and then would go on and plant more churches in other cities along the way. And Paul's writing a letter back to them because they had received the gospel of Jesus Christ with, with just great enthusiasm, but now he's getting word that after they received the gospel, evidently a group of Judaizing Christians, Judaizers, moved into this, those churches and started imposing rules and traditions and rituals on them that, the, that Jesus had died for and that were no longer uh, in effect under the gospel. He, they, he was imposing the Old Testament Mosaic law, these people were. And, and basically what they were doing is they were insisting that, sure, you're saved by grace, but you have to do this other thing too to really be pleasing to God. If you're really going to please him, then you, you have to follow all these rules as well. 
by insisting on Christ plus anything else as a requirement, these teachers were basically, Paul tells us, they were presenting an entirely different gospel. It wasn't just the gospel plus something. He says, no, 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 it's an entirely different gospel. As if there was another gospel, he says. Um, And then one last thing in terms of just some historical background. I think it's really important for us to notice that Paul, obviously a, a big part of Galatians is he's preaching the gospel to them. But, but notice he's not writing to people who have not believed. He's writing to people who have believed. The gospel is something that we need to be saved and that we need to continue to live as Jesus' people. If you're going to make it, you need the gospel. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to be reminded of the gospel and of God's freedom and of his grace that he offers in Jesus Christ. And so that's where we're heading with this series. Uh, One thing to note, this is a letter. And New Testament Greek, Greco-Roman letters looked a lot different than English letters. Like if I write a letter to you, I might write, dear so-and-so, comma. And then I'd say, blah, 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 blah. And at the end, I would say, uh, maybe a final greeting, sincerely, or uh, if it's to Hannah, I would say, love, XOXOXO, comma, Josh, right? But that's not how letters were written in that day. What they were written, they started uh, like this. Uh, First, there was a salutation. You know, in a Greek letter, it'd be greetings and health, Greetings and health to you. And then uh, there'd be an opening Thanksgiving. The writer would say something they're thankful for about you. And then after that, they would get to the main point of why they're writing. And then they'd have some closing personal words and finally some kind of closing salutation or benediction at the end. And the letters in the New Testament follow this pattern, not the pattern that you and I write letters. So the New Testament letters look something like this. Uh, They start off with a salutation except for Hebrews and John, they all open with an identification of the writer and the recipients. That was in the beginning of the letter. So that's what we see here as we start reading. Paul, an apostle, not for men, and then he says later, to the churches of Galatia. That's how they wrote letters. Uh, There was an opening prayer and thanksgiving. You know, I'm so thankful for you. I praise God for you in this, 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 and this. And then he got to the point of his letter, and then there were some closing personal miscellaneous remarks at the end, and then a final farewell or benediction. But what's really curious about this letter to the Galatians is Paul skips a part. He skips that whole uh, opening prayer in Thanksgiving. He says nothing to them. It's the only letter he does this in. He says nothing to them about what he's thankful for. He just gets right into it. And what you're going to see here uh, in in verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you've turned your back on the gospel. How dare you? He says nothing. It's no pleasantries. He's just, here we go. Y'all need a harsh word. So with that in mind, let's just read through uh, what Paul wrote. And uh, as we read this, um, you've got it right on the the front of of your bulletin or of your insert there. And I'm going to read through the first nine verses, and then we'll come back and begin to unpack it. So here's the beginning of this letter. He says, uh, Paul... An apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul makes a big deal here that he's not an apostle appointed by man, but by Jesus. We'll talk about that. And all the brothers who are with me. Evidently, there were some other people with Paul while he's writing this. 
So he's not just writing on behalf of himself about a gospel that that he's come up with or that only he preaches, but all those who are with him share the same uh, opinion that he does. Then he says, to the churches of Galatia. Now, most of Paul's letters were written to individual churches, but this letter and Ephesians would have been another one, were written to a, a, a group of churches in a region. Ephesians, your text will say to the church in Ephesus, but early, the earliest manuscripts leave that out. So it was likely a circular letter that went around, excuse me, to different churches. And here's his greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, in a typical letter right here, we would expect him to say, I am so thankful for you, and uh, I am just so encouraged by the way you're growing and all the things happening in your church. But look what he does. He goes, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Now, uh, Paul writes this letter, and uh, that would have been uh, really pretty astonishing to the people to read that and to hear that. Paul's astonished. uh, Well, they would have been astonished because they would have been sitting around. This would have been read in public in one of their services, and they would have thought, oh, Paul's going to say something nice to us. And instead, it's like, no, I'm I'm really kind of ticked off at you people. I've got something I've got to tell you. They're kind of, oh, he's got our attention. What's he want? Well, why was Paul so astonished? It's because these young Christians were taking hold of a gospel that isn't really a gospel. They they were adding things to it. They They were in confusion. He was also really angry at the ones who were misleading them. The people who had come into the church, and uh, he even he, he he said they were trying to pervert the gospel. In other words, reverse it is the Greek word there. And he, he was he was furious with them. He calls down condemnation on them in verse nine. He says, "Let them be accursed." Uh, he, he's also angry at the Galatian Christians themselves, warning them that they're deserting the God who had called them. As we keep going, we're going to see that uh, what caused Paul's outburst, I, I already kind of let you know this, but uh, is, is this group of, of Christians who came in and started telling them that they all had to still obey the Mosaic law for which, of which Jesus had already fulfilled. And Paul says, uh, this is an absolute repudiation of everything I've been telling you. He's not pulling punches. I mean, they, they would have been shocked at some of the things he said to them. He was very direct, very in their face. There was no mincing words. Their condition is a dangerous one, and they're in danger. So who is this guy to speak this way to them? I mean, how is it that Paul can actually speak to them in this way? Well, look at verse 1 again. He said, uh, Paul, an apostle. Do you know what an apostle is? An apostle is uh, literally, the Greek word means someone who is sent on a mission of some sort. He's a sent one. 
He's sent with a message. But in his case, it's not just an apostle. It's a capital A apostle. When we read this in the Bible, uh, most often it's referring to those who sat directly under the teaching of the risen Lord Jesus. So it refers to the original disciples, but then also to Paul, because Jesus himself appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Now later you'll see there's maybe one or two other spots where it talks about uh, apostles being uh, those who, uh, who carried a particular message or were sent with a message for God, but they were sent by men. And Paul, capital A apostle, he's somebody who, he was given his commission directly from God. His, his words are absolutely authoritative. When he writes things down, it's scripture. Now that term apostle is, is sometimes still used today, but we have to distinguish between somebody who's a small a apostle, who's, who's one sent with a message from the Lord to preach, to teach, to, to do ministry, and a capital A apostle who has ultimate authority. For the small a apostle, their authority comes from God's word as it did for capital A, but when they spoke and when they wrote, it was literally scripture. So uh, when Paul says, uh, I'm I'm astonished that you've turned to another gospel, one question that comes to mind then is what is the gospel? How would you describe the gospel? Literally, that term means, means what? Do you know? It means good news. Good news. Hey, I got some good news for you. Did you get any good news this week? Maybe you got bad news this week. Well, today you're going to get some good news. And, and the good news of the gospel is this, um, that Jesus Christ has come to die on the cross for you in your place to redeem you and save you. But here's, there's also some bad news that it starts with. It really starts with some bad news. It starts with the bad news of who we are. You and I are helpless and lost apart from Jesus' grace. That's the beginning of the gospel. See, that's what Paul, Paul implies in verse four when he says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Some translations will say to rescue you. You are, you are helpless on your own and spiritually lost. So am I. And, and the idea that Jesus needs to rescue you implies that you can't do anything for yourself to be rescued. See, a lot of times we think that uh, I become a Christian and all I need, or, or even to become a Christian, all I need is a lot of good knowledge and I've got to believe the right things and, you know, check, 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 check. But in reality, no, it's that Jesus rescued you. Yeah, that'd be like if you, uh, you go for a walk this summer, you're walking around Wawasee on one of the trails and you look out into the lake and you see uh, a lady drowning. And so you're like, oh no, she's drowning. And so you say, hey, Here's a manual on how to swim, and you toss her out some teaching. Is that helpful to her? No, she needs to be rescued. She can't save herself. A little, a little more information isn't going to help her. She needs a rope is what she needs. She needs, and, and in Jesus' case, he doesn't just throw us a rope. He gets in the water and pushes us out and substitutes himself in our place. Uh, who we are, we're helpless and lost. And then what does Jesus do? He rescues us. That's another part of the gospel. He, he gave himself, verse 4 says, for our sins. He made a sacrifice that was substitutionary in nature. 
See, in this greeting, Paul right away keys in on the truth of the gospel very plainly, very simply, that Jesus Christ is the one whom God the Father raised from the dead. He's the one who gave himself for our sins to to deliver us from our sin and from this present evil age. Jesus rescued us and he substituted himself for us. He He didn't just pay for us. He actually took our place. And this is really, really important to understand. Jesus didn't just pay for your sin on the cross. He took your place on the cross. He's a substitute for you. See, because if, if here's the deal. If Jesus' death really, uh, really paid for your sin, if he was really your perfect substitute, guess what there is no longer remaining for you? Condemnation. There's none left for you because Jesus took your place on the cross and he took all of God's condemnation for sin. And so even the voice in your head, your own head, do you have this? I have this sometimes. Condemning yourself for your own sin is a false prophet because Jesus was your perfect substitute. And if you've trusted him, there's nothing left to pay. And you know what? There's nothing else you can do to earn God's favor because that would be totally unjust for God to receive a second payment for a sin that was already totally paid for. It would make God unjust. You can't add anything to it. Jesus rescued you. And the Father accepted the work of Jesus on our behalf by raising him from the dead. And he did it all out of God's, all out of his grace. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that God, that that Jesus has done. There seems to be no other indication of Jesus' motivation. Look at that in verse four. He, He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Why? According to uh, how cool he thought you were, how good you were, and how many times you had done good things. No. According to the will of his father, according to the will of God the Father. It was according to nothing that Josh Wyland has done that Jesus died on the cross in my place. It was according to everything of what Jesus has done God didn't accept his sacrifice because of anything I've done, but all because of what Jesus has done. And God won't fully fully save me one day and make me totally clean and totally void of sin one day because of my effort, but because of everything Jesus has done. We like to say it like this. It's all about who? Jesus. It's all about him, friends. It has nothing to do with us. It's, he gave himself according to the will of God our Father, not according to your good works or mine. The humbling truth of, of Christianity is this, that you are in such a hopeless position that you are more wicked, more dreadfully wicked, and more dreadfully cursed, and more dreadfully sinful than you ever feared. You absolutely are, and so am I. But in Jesus Christ, because he took your place on the cross, you are more loved and accepted and treasured than you could ever dream. Than you could ever dream. That's the truth of the gospel. Now, as Paul writes this letter, he starts off right away saying, I'm, I'm astonished that you've turned to another gospel. See, the other gospel for them was simply that they were adding things to it, that they uh, 
that they would have to obey Mosaic law, that they would have to keep all these rituals and traditions. And so as I'm thinking about this this week, I'm going, okay, so what are some, uh, what are some false gospels today? What are some false gospels that maybe we're prone to that if Paul wrote a letter to us, what if he wrote a letter to us and said, uh, to the church at Wawasee, I am astonished that you've turned from the grace of Jesus Christ to another gospel as if there was another one. Here's some thoughts this morning. Uh, Here's some common false gospels, I think both in Paul's day, but also especially in ours. Here's the first one, the Jesus plus gospel. This is very similar to what was happening in the church in Galatia, the Jesus plus gospel. Here's how this this gospel uh, plays itself out. It wrongly teaches that you're saved uh, through your surrender to Jesus and that uh, somehow uh, that plus right beliefs and behavior uh, make you acceptable and pleasing to God. Jesus plus something. Um, people are challenged. Now, this is really common in, evangel- in the evangelical world, right? People are challenged to give their lives to Jesus, to, to ask him into your life. And this sounds really grace-based and good and all that sort of stuff, but ultimately it, it can be confused in our minds to where we think we did something to be saved. And the truth is, no, it's not, it's not Jesus plus you uh, doing this or uh, plus you behaving this way. It's simply Jesus and belief in him. Uh, a lot of times what happens when we say Jesus plus is uh, you'll get, someone will get saved and then we'll start heaping all of these things on them. Okay, oh, you're a Christian now? Well, here, now here, now right away we start just throwing stuff on them. We can. Uh, don't, don't dress like this, don't talk like this, do 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 this. And they're like, What? I, just, I was just told it was all done. What are you throwing on me now? And then the other thing that happens is sometimes we buy into this belief that um, it, it's, I, I kind of said it as we were singing earlier, it's, it's not the object of my faith that saves me, but it's like the level of my faith. Like I've got to have some kind of a per, good enough performance to stay right and pleasing to God. That if I, if I just crank up enough faith, somehow God will be pleased with me but it's not the level of your faith. It's not your performance. It's not the emotion with which uh, you engage. It's none of those things that saves you. It's the object of your faith. You're, not sa- you're saved through faith by grace, right? It's the object of your faith that saves you, which is Jesus Christ. Another false gospel that comes up a lot today is what I like to call the uh, pretty good person gospel. I'm a pretty good person. You know what the pretty good person gospel is? The pretty good person gospel is the gospel that says, uh, it doesn't really matter too much what you believe as long as you're a pretty good person. You know, you, you do enough good things. You, relatively speaking, compared to everyone else, you're, you're a pretty good guy. You're, she's a pretty good lady. Uh, it, this is really typical in, in what we might refer to as maybe more liberal churches. Um, it teaches that all good people, regardless of their religious beliefs or lack thereof, will find God. It sounds extremely open-minded. It's really common in our culture today because it's just like, oh, it's so, so tolerant of everyone. But you know what it's intolerant of? God's grace. 
It's intolerant of his grace. In two ways. First, it teaches that, uh, that good works are somehow good enough for you to get to God. And I hate to tell you this. Well, no, I don't hate to tell you this. I long to tell you this. Your good works are never good enough to get you to God. It will never be good enough. If good people can know God, then Jesus' death wasn't necessary. All it takes is virtue. And instead of uh, repenting of my sin and turning to Jesus and getting involved in a local church, I can just go uh, serve at the Lions Club and on the, uh, the town council and on the school board and do enough good works and have enough bake sales that I'm a pretty good person. I think I'll be okay. It totally ignores the fact that, no, you're actually more wicked than you ever feared. You're more uh, destitute and uh, in need of a savior than, than you can ever imagine. And that Jesus Christ's death, then it makes it unnecessary. Second, it encourages, to, it encourages people to think that if they're just tolerant and open, then they don't even need God. They don't need his grace. I'm just going to be tolerant enough and open enough. And it's never enough. Here's the third gospel. And if I'm honest, I think, and if we're honest... Um, this is the one, maybe, if I was to diagnose us, that sometimes we can fall into the, the most, would be this, or most easily anyway, is what I'm calling the bureaucratic gospel. Or you could just say the religious gospel. Here's what I mean by bureaucratic. Bure, bureaucratic, here's a definition of the word. It means overly concerned with procedure <laughs> at the expense of common sense. Overly concerned with procedure. The bureaucratic gospel, the religion, the gospel of religion uh, is similar to Jesus plus, but, but it's different in the sense that what it does is it imposes and it burdens people with uh, a whole variety of different rules, uh, regulations, things like uh, the way um, the, the way you uh, dress the way you eat, your behavior. Don't run in the church. We tell kids, right? Because it's God's house. Sorry, this is a little pet peeve of mine. I'll get on my soapbox for just a second. If you're gonna tell your kids not to run in the church, tell them so that they don't get hurt. <laughs> and so someone else doesn't get hurt, not because it's God's house. Because guess whose else house is God's house? Your house. <laughs> and my house. And your neighbor's house. They all belong to God. And there's no place on earth that's, that's more uh, sanctimonious or more religious or more, uh, more holy than any other place. God is omnipresent. He is good and gracious and loving. He owns all things. Don't confuse your kids by telling them that somehow this is God's house and your house isn't. Okay, off my soapbox. Or we can impose, um, by the way, my son's one you can tell to slow down because he likes to run. Um, tradition. That's the way we've always done it. And I'm sorry, if you're going to be a part of this church, you need to make sure that you always do it this way as well. That's a bureaucratic gospel. You've got to do it this way. When we sing, we sing with our hands in our pockets and we don't show any emotion because that's what's right. You'd be surprised in heaven. Um, or uh, tradition, this is just, that's, that's what we do, right? Or, or dress, this is how you ought to dress. 
you ought to dress up. No, you ought to not dress up too much. You, you ought to follow this ritual, this, these rules, these fill in the blank. It's just burdening people with things that the gospel doesn't burden them with. And so I share some of Paul's fire saying, don't you dare do that. And at the same time, don't you dare believe that when others do it to you. It's for freedom that Jesus Christ has set you free. Not for a bunch of rules, for freedom. Do you get that? And you, you live a holy life in response to what Jesus has done on the cross. Not to somehow earn God's favor or be good enough or be right enough or fill in the blank. Because if that's the case, then what did Jesus die for if you're going to be good enough on your own anyway? You need the gospel to save you, and you need the gospel to sanctify you, to live according to that in freedom, friends. Not burdened with rules that, that the Bible and that the gospel doesn't throw on you. Or worse, that you would throw on others. Live in freedom. There's a sweetness of life in the freedom of the gospel. Learn to rest in God's grace. That's, I think, what Paul's going to teach us maybe in a lot of ways through this. He's going to confront us in some pretty harsh ways to say, what are those things that you're believing that, that you need to throw off or that other people have thrown on you that you need to put away? And, and how, how are you going to respond simply in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing he did it, he did it all? And that, that by him doing it, now you go live a life that's pleasing to him. You don't live a life to try to please him. In fact, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he said this to the churches around Ephesus, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not. It's the gift of God. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that you and I can't boast about it. Amen? Maybe you think of it this way then as you think about your life following Jesus. Um, those of you who are fishermen, I've never known a fisherman who's able to clean their fish before he catches them. Unless he's fishing in the, in the supermarket. <laughs> You're saved and then you live that out. And you live that out in freedom. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us in him. Um, Lord, Paul was passionate as he wrote this. And I, I sense his passion. Uh, and it wasn't that he was... Well, he, he was angry with what people were teaching. But he, he, was, he was upset because he wanted people to know true freedom. And to know the truth of the gospel. And what true grace really is. Jesus, that's where my passion comes from too. Help us to live in freedom, to live with joy. Let our study through this book over the coming weeks and months be one that, um, Holy Spirit, you would use to, to unshackle us from wrong things we've thought or wrong things that have been imposed on us by others or that we've imposed on other people. And instead, let us live uh, a life of freedom and of grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. It has nothing to do with us. Because if it had even a little part, it would all fall apart and fail.
Thanks for your love for us. Thanks for Jesus. For those of you who are listening who've never trusted Jesus with your life, it's a simple act of faith. It's recognizing that you can never do enough good things on your own to be saved, that you're a sinner, that you're, you're hopeless and lost, and that you need a Savior. And if you would simply uh, uh, turn in your heart and, and, and uh, believe in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for you, maybe even a simple prayer like this, Father, uh, please forgive me of my sin. Jesus, I trust you. I know I can't do it on my own. I trust you as my Savior. God's word promises that if you would believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, that you'll be saved. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You don't have to dress the right way, talk the right way, know the right people. You just have to trust Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Amen.